Welcome again. Glad to have you all with us. Uh, we're continuing in Second Samuel. If you're in one of the blue church Bibles, I think we're somewhere in the pages 250s. Second uh, Samuel chapter 3. I'm going to skip forward a little bit for the sake of time. It's a long chapter. Teresa read earlier about how this guy Abner, maybe you remember from last week if you were here, Abner uh, has been the commander for the army of King Saul. Uh, Abner and David uh, have made a kind of a tentative peace with each other. Abner is promising to bring over all these uh, tribes of Israel over to David's side, the new King David. And so then we hear about now this guy named Joab. Joab is the commander for David's army. Uh, Abner has been the commander for Saul's army. So those are kind of the two main pieces of this part I'm going to read. I'm going to start reading from chapter 3, verse 22 to the end of the chapter. 2 Samuel 3:22. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away. And he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he's let him go, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach, so that he died, for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, put on sackcloth, mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebnon, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still yet day. But David swore saying, God, do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Don't you know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zariah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Jesus, your words are spirit and life. We know that our flesh in and of ourselves is of no help to us to understand what you're saying to us or how we might find you, how we might live in this world. So draw us up and out of ourselves and into you and your son Jesus, 
so that we might live life in this world in the way that you've called us to. And most of all, so that we might long for your kingdom and live with confidence in its coming. For we pray confidently in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a lot to be discouraged by, a lot to be overwhelmed by in the world right now. Uh, We have economic turmoil churning. We have rumblings of world war, nuclear strikes, uh, growing crime and homelessness, uh, addictions, overdoses, riling the country, confusion and propaganda about gender and sexuality, a zealous disregard for the lives of the unborn. But closer to home, many of us are facing things like distant marriages, dreadful diagnoses, mounting bills, wayward children. Maybe for some of us this morning, it's not any one specific thing that we're worried about. Uh, It's just a general shroud of anxiety about life in general. It's just all so overwhelming. In the midst of these kinds of messes, We wonder where God can be in it all. We wonder how God could really be at work behind it and through it and despite it. It all seems so powerful, so impossible to overcome. We're continuing this morning in the story of 2 Samuel chapter 3, where God wants to show us that we really can and we really should trust that his blessed kingdom really is advancing. Not just in spite of the chaos and the misery of the world, but actually through it. In other words, the reality, and it is real, the reality of personal and social chaos does not ultimately trump the deeper truth of God's steadfast commitment to place his king on his throne to rule over his world in his justice and his mercy. Reality does not trump the truth. Last week we heard about the outbreak of civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Uh, We said that David is a picture of God's greater and better king to come. He's a picture of Jesus who is going to come as God's final and cosmic king over the entire universe. In the season of Advent, we celebrate that he's already come once and that he's going to come back again to finish what he started. Uh, Jesus has come as God's final and cosmic king, but at the same time, we know, and Jesus often talked about this, his kingdom continues to be widely opposed in the midst of its apparent weakness. When Jesus was born to an unmarried mother in the provincial backwaters of the mighty Roman Empire, uh, about the last thing that you would ever expect was that God's kingdom was coming gloriously. Uh, You would easily think, looking at the state of God's people and their position in the world, you would easily think that God has forgotten, God has lost, God has gone soft. Second second Samuel chapter 3 is describing uh, much more chaos and suffering for David than we began to hear about last week as he's rising to power. And as we see the chaos and the misery of his life, we are ultimately meant to be encouraged to stick with Jesus and with his kingdom, with Jesus as a picture of David and his suffering. Uh, No matter how overwhelming our circumstances might be or however weak his kingdom might appear to us. 
Last week we saw how God's kingdom in David was advancing in the face of outright war and outright violence. But this week we shift to uh, kinds of opposition that are much more subtle, uh, very subdued, even surprising. And the first way that we see this still going on is in verses 6 to 16. You see God's kingdom advancing despite human plots. Despite human plots. Uh, The first of these is Abner's plot to hand over Saul's kingdom to David. Uh, We said that Abner is the commander of Saul's army. Saul has died in battle now. And Abner, we saw last week, he has effectively taken over his kingdom, uh, though he is ruling kind of by means of pulling the strings on Saul's flaccid son, this guy named Ishbosheth. You read in verse 6 that while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. So there is a hot war going on out there between David and Saul. But in here, inside of Saul's house, there's a cold war. Abner has been positioning himself. He's pulling the levers behind the curtain so as to advance himself, so as to control everybody around him, even the guy with the job title of king. Some of us know the type. We have an Abner in our school or in our office or in our family. Somebody who's somehow always working everybody else, working behind the scenes, controlling everything, somehow at the center of it all. Uh, But as our own simmering conflicts like this often do, this Cold War now bubbles over into a skirmish. Ishbosheth accuses Abner of sleeping with one of Saul's concubines, uh, which was something sort of like a wife. Not quite a wife, but basically a wife. In the ancient world, uh, sleeping with the king's concubine was something that you would do to assert your dominance, your intention to usurp somebody's authority, somebody's throne. That might sound very strange and foreign to us, uh, but the reality is that today's sexual revolution has actually exalted the use of sex for personal advancement and personal control. And as always, the worst effects of it are falling on the poor. We're not so different than we like to think we are. Uh, Abner does not deny this accusation. But it's not entirely clear if he actually did what he's being accused of. Uh, In any case, he's totally offended. He says, I've been showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father. I have not given you into the hand of David, even though I had every chance to do so. He says, who do you think you are? And these crazy, uh, messed up Old Testament families, it's like a reality show. You can't look away from all of the dysfunction of these people. Uh, And so whether or not he actually did it, we don't really know. Uh, It's not really clear. Uh, But he doesn't want his position challenged. Uh, He doesn't want to lose any of his prestige. He doesn't want to be uh, pushed by even the king. And so he takes his ball and he goes home. He swears an oath. He says, how dare you accuse me of this? How dare you talk to me like this? I'm going to take your 11 tribes and I'm going to bring them over to King David, your enemy. Abner knows he has the real power in the, in the kingdom. He has the real influence. Uh, Ishbosheth, for whatever reason, has talked a very big game, but he knows he can't do anything about it. In verse 11, all we read is that he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Abner's the real power. So that's the first human plot, the boiling over of this simmering hostility, this simmering cold war in Saul's house. But God is going to use it 
for his own purposes. His kingdom is advancing, and by means of this, David's kingdom is going to grow to include all 12 tribes. The next subtle human plot is in verses 12 to 16, except now, surprisingly, it's David's plot. Uh, We weren't that surprised to see Abner doing something kind of underhanded after we got to know him last week, but now we hear about even David uh, doing a similar kind of plot. Abner sends messengers to David to lay out his plan. He says, make your covenant with me. My hand will be with you to bring all Israel over to you. David says, this is great. This is awesome. Once again, God is handing over the kingdom to David without David having to do a single thing to take it for himself. It's amazing. But at this point, David inserts a condition. He says, you will not see my face unless you first bring me Michael, Saul's daughter. Michael had been David's wife, but when her dad Saul turned on David and drove him away and tried to kill him, uh, Saul took his daughter, Michael, David's wife, and he married her off to another guy. Now David says, 10, 15 years later, he says, I want my wife back. Uh, Almost certainly, though, this is not uh, some cutesy uh, Hallmark-type movie situation. This is not for romantic reasons. Uh, This is a political move. David's thinking that by reuniting with her, by fathering an heir with her, he can unite the house of David and the house of Saul and bring peace once and for all to Israel. And so even David, for all of his admirable qualities, and he has many of them, we're meant to see them, even David has these episodes where he's relying on himself and his own thinking and his own plans, where he operates on the world's terms for how do you get power, how do you get above other people, how do you take control. Uh, Last week we heard that David is now up to six wives, uh, seven if you count Michael. And I pointed out that God had made it very clear, uh, back in the days of Moses even, even before they had a king, God made it very clear that one day you're going to demand a king and when you have a king, uh, here's the deal. He cannot have more than one wife. Do not accumulate wives. Don't be like the other kings around the rest of the world who wheel and deal in wives to advance their political position. So David should not be doing this. David knows better than this. Uh, Now, was Michael technically his wife? Yes, she's still technically his wife. Was it his fault that her dad married her off to somebody else? No, that's not David's fault. But the text does not really try to draw those lines for us. It doesn't really make any of those points about, well, this isn't really his fault, and this is all very complicated. Uh, What the text actually focuses us in on, I don't know if you caught this, look at verses 15 and 16. Instead, it wants to focus us on the tragedy of the broken marriage. It says, Ishbosheth took her. Now listen, she's like a a thing. They just take her and they just kind of move her around. They do whatever they want with her. Ishbosheth takes her from her husband Paltiel, but her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Uh, I know maybe there's one or two of you that have never been to Bahurim. Uh, Bahurim is 20 miles away. This guy follows his wife, crying and crying and crying, walking for 20 miles. Then Abner says to him, go back, get out of here. And he returned, we're told. So even though the main emphasis of the chapters is on David's integrity, you get another one of these ominous warnings about him. You get this reminder, this kind of drip, drip, drip through the first half of 2 Samuel, that David has this tendency to make self-serving plots. Uh, Wheeling and dealing in underhanded ways with other people's wives is going to destroy David in a few chapters. The second half of 2 Samuel is going to really underscore 
how much David has destroyed his own life through these kinds of things. But it, right now, even though the emphasis is on the fact that David's a good guy and he's a good king, you're still getting these reminders about him. David, as great as he is, is not the king that Israel ultimately needs. He's making a political power play. He uses his wife as a pawn. And the whole episode does not have any one clear bad guy. It's this churning vortex of ugly wounds and disastrous broken relationships. But the point for us today is to see that God is at work through it all. God has not gone AWOL on David or on his world. God is there. He's working through it. He's working in spite of it. He's spreading his kingdom in and through and in spite of the same kinds of situations today in your life and in our world. God has not forgotten about you. So there's a couple human plots that we see God using behind the scenes to work out his greater kingdom purposes. But then starting in verse 17, uh, we see a slightly different shift. Instead of uh, these distinct plots people are making, now we kind of get into these uh, posturing moves that people are doing. So the way I came up with this was we move from human plotting to human posturing. Uh, Back to Abner, verse 17. You see that God's kingdom is advancing in spite of those who have good theology but questionable motives. Good theology but questionable motives. Uh, Is Abner, you know, he comes to David and he says, Hey, you know, God's promised you the kingdom. I'd like to hand over this kingdom to you. I'm ready to work for you. Is he putting on an act? Uh, Is this a front for him? I don't know. Uh, I've been wrestling with this for two weeks and I'm really not sure. I think that's kind of the point. It's not clear if Abner is really loyal to David, if he's really convinced that he's God's anointed, or if he's just bowing to political reality with his finger in the wind uh, in an effort to preserve himself and his position. Uh, Either way, whatever's going on in his heart or in his mind, and the author doesn't tell us that, either way, he's saying the right things. He says to the leaders of the other 11 tribes, he says, the Lord has promised David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Uh, Abner is an excellent Bible student. Uh, He's been warring against David for a couple of years now, but apparently he's known all along uh, who David really was and what God has said to him. When he comes to meet David and they share this feast of friendship, Abner says to him, I will gather all of Israel to my Lord, the King, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. He calls David the right names. He addresses him with the right words. David seems convinced at least by it all. Uh, Whether or not uh, he was foolish to do so, we're not sure. We repeatedly hear that David now sends Abner away in peace. Three times, we're told, Abner goes away in peace. David is satisfied. David's happy about this turn of events. He is ready to shake hands and make a deal with him. So Abner's theology is pretty good, and he speaks respectfully to God's king. But we have gotten so used to him by now, looking out for number one, so used to him manipulating everybody around him, that we don't know if he really means it. But then and now, God is at work through people and in spite of people who say the right things, even if their motives are unclear or even obviously wrong. The history of Jesus' church is filled with people who have claimed to know and to love him and yet whose behavior ultimately reveals otherwise. One of the greatest objections to Christianity today is the hypocrisy of people who claim to be Christians but show by the way they live that they don't actually care about what the Bible says or what Jesus says. 
Uh, it's the most terrible, of course, when it's somebody in a position of authority. Even so, God is advancing his kingdom under the rule of King Jesus. God is at work in spite of, even through, those who say the right things but may or may not truly believe. Uh, the next episode of human posturing now revolves around Joab, the other commander. This is now David's commander. He also has his own kind of way of posturing and positioning himself to gain status. Abner, Saul's guy, Abner had good theology, but questionable motives. Joab has great motives, but horrible methods. Great motives, but horrible methods. When he hears about David's peace treaty with Abner, he's furious. Abner had killed his own brother in the battle we heard about last week. Joab is also deeply suspicious. He cannot believe that David could be such a dupe. It says, verse 24, What have you done? You know that Abner came to deceive you, to know about all that you're doing. He's a spy, David. You are an idiot. What are you thinking? To Joab, Abner's background is so awful that he must beyond, be beyond any hope of redemption, any hope of reconciliation. Uh, you sometimes see the same thing today among Christians who refuse to accept that somebody with a checkered past could really and truly become part of the church, uh, at least not without seriously cleaning up their lives first in a way that makes them happy. For Joab, uh, there may also be an element of jealousy. Abner is a great military warrior, a great leader. And now that David is so chummy with him, it's probably uh, Joab is getting worried that his own position uh, in David's military is now under threat. Uh, in any case, Joab has good motives. He just wants to protect the king. He wants to preserve the kingdom. He wants to stop David from making this terrible, naive mistake. But what he does next with his good motives is awful. Uh, I read an essay this week about a German soldier from World War I named Ernst Junger. Uh, he was a highly decorated infantryman in the trenches of World War I. Uh, here's something he said, uh, reflecting on the absolute horrors of World War I uh, by these highly civilized powers in Europe blowing each other apart. He said, In man there is a beast who sleeps blissfully on the comfortable inlaid carpets of a polished civilization. But sometimes the mask falls. And naked as ever, the beast bursts forth. Joab's mask is falling. The beast is bursting. Without David's knowledge, Joab calls Abner back to the city of Hebron. He pulls him aside at the city gates and says, Hey, come over here. I want to talk to you. I want to tell you about these Bible verses I've been reading. All these things I've been learning about. It's so, so great. Uh, pulls him over where no one can really see him, and then as he comes over, totally unsuspecting, he suddenly stabs him right in the stomach. Uh, this is now the third guy in a couple of chapters who's been killed by being stabbed in the stomach. This is a theme through here, and this is not the last one. Uh, Abner had stabbed his own brother in the stomach to kill him. King Saul had died by being stabbed in the stomach. Uh, but Saul and Joab's brother died in battle. And remember, we were told repeatedly that Abner went away in peace from David. So Joab is murdering Abner. He's murdering him in cold blood. He's so confident in his own verdict on Abner's depravity. And the crazy thing about this story is that you never find out if Abner was truly actually becoming loyal to David. 
uh, I thought of it be like, kind of like this. If you know the parable that Jesus tells about the prodigal son, you have a younger brother who goes off and lives it up wild and crazy, and then he realizes this isn't working out so good, I need to go back to my dad and ask for forgiveness. But you have this older brother who's really mad about the fact that he came back. Uh, what we're reading about right now, imagine that parable, except when the younger brother is coming up the road to ask dad for forgiveness, uh, the younger brother, just to be on the safe side, shoots him in the head and says, well, we couldn't really trust that guy. He was a really bad dude. He really messed up a lot of things. That's like what's going on right here. We don't know if Abner was truly coming over to David. We don't get to find out. Joab just kills him before we can find out what's really happening. It's an awful, ugly mess. David cannot get a break even from his own sin, let alone the sin of other people. Many of us today are deep down in the swampy sadness of this world. It can all be so overwhelming. It can make it look like Jesus is irrelevant and his kingdom is pointless. But even so, what this text wants us to see today is that God is still at work. God's kingdom is still advancing in spite of all this, even through all of it. That's what the final section of this passage wants to emphasize for us most of all. In spite of everything that's been happening, this complete dumpster fire of chaos and conflict, you hear in the last paragraphs of the chapter, you hear seven times, you hear seven times that David is the king. He's the king, he's the king, he's the king, he's the king. The suffering and the chaos do not change the fact that God's king is ruling, that God's king is spreading his kingdom. And how much more is that the case when we're talking about King Jesus, who, unlike David, is untainted by sin and selfishness? In this last section, David's integrity is really highlighted for us. So we're getting a glimpse of the greater integrity of his greater son, Jesus. Now, what does this piece, the passage teach us? about God's king as he's ruling in the midst of so much misery. Uh, the first thing I think you see in those last couple paragraphs is that God's king is grieved by the murderous vanity of the human family. In verses 31 and 32, David laments the shameful murder of Joab and then he weeps at his grave. David doesn't just shrug it all off as something, you know, oh well, you know, what goes around comes around. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. He doesn't do any of that. David really sees and experiences the tragedy of men and women's brutality toward one another. But you also see that God's king is not complicit in that brutality. When David first hears about the murder, he immediately professes his innocence. Verse 28, he says, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord. I had nothing to do with this. Later at the funeral, you hear that the people of Israel, as they're watching this military funeral, you hear that they see that David's grief is the real deal, that he really is innocent. He wasn't just putting on a show for uh, media purposes or public relations purposes. This wasn't just about David advancing, getting onto the throne more easily. And in Jesus, most supremely, you have the king that you need, a king who truly grieves truly experiences the evil of the human race, but never once succumbs to it, is himself personally untainted by it. You also see here that God's king is just toward the wicked. David is so angry with Joab, he even pronounces this curse on him. 
He does not say, oh, well, you meant well. Uh, you know, here's a little demerit. Try to improve for your review next year. Uh, it's okay. You got kind of carried away. Uh, it's okay. I'll let it slide. I nearly need you around. You're an important person. David doesn't do any of that. Uh, God's king does not and cannot tolerate evil or hypocrisy in his kingdom. He cannot ever just wink at sin. Uh, we'll focus on this more next week in chapter 4. God's king is just toward the wicked. But at the same time, you also see that God's king is gentle toward the wayward. He's gentle toward the wayward. Verse 39, David says, I was gentle today, even though I'm anointed king. These men are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So unlike everybody around him, unlike everybody around him, David is not seeking vengeance. David is not promoting himself. David is not using other people with some notable and ominous exceptions. David was ready and willing to extend mercy and peace to his fearsome enemy, Abner. He trusted that God is the ultimate judge. And today, God's King Jesus offers mercy and peace to anybody who's willing to bow to him, no matter what you've done, no matter how you have fought against him. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 5, God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did not wait for you to become his friend. While you're his enemy, he came and gave you everything. And now, having risen from the dead, Jesus is God's king. He is far greater than David. His kingdom is God's kingdom. No matter how weak it might appear, no matter how much misery the kingdom and its citizens might face, you can trust Jesus. He will preserve you. God is advancing his kingdom through him. No matter how much sin and evil you see within you and around you. So stay confident in him. Stay confident in his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we do lament with David the sadness and the brutality and the misery of this world in the ways that we have experienced it personally, in the ways that we have seen other people experiencing it, in the ways that we have inflicted it on others. We lament it and we grieve it. But we want to be confident in your kingdom rule in your goodness and your justice being the final note of history. Help us, Lord, to see that in Jesus as we long for his second coming. Help us to be joyful, to be sacrificial, to be generous uh, in this confidence in his kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen.